if we can be a tiny bit better every day, in a year we will see an amazing transformation in the results of our effort. That's something that I see every day. There's really no excuse, just do it, you know, just start working on your idea. All these things start to add up. They might not seem very important when you're doing them at first, but all these little things, they add up. And at the end of the day, you can end up having something as meaningful as a, you know, a huge company with a great team. The eventual success, I guess, of a company or a startup is not deemed by how much you know, but how fast you learn. So I'm uh, Panos Yosos. I'm uh, the co-founder, uh, one of the co-founders and the CEO of LearnWorlds. I'm uh, age 44 and talking to you from Limassol, Cyprus. Limassol, Cyprus? Where's that, in case people don't know? Well, that's in the Mediterranean, northeastern Europe. Cyprus is a small island, part of the European Union, and uh, halfway between Europe and Middle East, let's say. I'm originally Greek, but I happen to be living and working in Cyprus since 2014. Sounds like a cool place. So you're the first person that I've talked to in Cyprus. So what brought you there? My family brought me here. So my wife had moved to Cyprus a few years earlier. She's a university professor working in digital media. And so she had moved here for an academic position. And then I followed her after a few years. Cyprus is a great place to work and live. It has sunshine about 330 days per year. You can swim 10 months per year. It also has a lot of expats, a great expat community as well, international business hub, very low taxation. So actually, it's a great place to both to be living and working and setting up a business. Sounds like a wonderful place. Sounds like everyone should move there and start a business, huh? Well, at least they can visit. Happy to receive anybody from your listeners who happens to be around. Happy to treat them the coffee. Oh, nice. I might take you up on that offer once I'm eventually allowed back over there. Definitely. Why not? Yeah. So yeah, I guess just visually, in case anyone's wondering, if they know where Israel and I guess Turkey and Egypt is kind of in the Mediterranean right there around all those countries, right? And Israel is about a 30-minute flight from here. And in fact, there's a growing Israeli community in Limassol. There are about more than 200 fintech businesses that have set up shop here, lots to do with like Forex and banking and all these stuff, fintech services. So there's a thriving Israeli community in this place. Cool. All right. Well, yeah, we might talk about that a little bit later on, but then let's jump back to your company first. So it's called Learn Worlds. Learn Worlds. Yes. One way can say that we are a Shopify for online courses. We are a platform where people can create, deliver, and sell online courses to their own customers, to their own audience. So we are a white label platform. We're not a marketplace. We don't have students of our own, but any trainer, any professional can create his or her own online school and share or sell their courses. And I guess what would be like your competitors? Let's say the closest competitors are companies like Thinkific, Teachable, or Kajabi. These are probably the most well-known. We are right there along with them in this narrow space. In the more general, broader sense, I would say learning management systems are also competitors. So LMSs, the traditional LMSs, platforms that help people train their employees usually. In our case, we are a lightweight LMS. We're not just a learning management system, so we don't just deliver the training, the training experience, but we also have an e-commerce engine. So we take a traditional LMS and make it ready to sell direct-to-consumer e-learning courses. So that's the extra thing that we do with our own platform. 
Okay. I'm, I'm guessing, does LMS mean learning management system? Yes, yes. Sorry for using that term. I'm good. These are, I guess, more traditional tools, usually in a company setting for mandatory training. So as you can imagine, very boring training, like old style, mandatory, compliance kind of training. And that's also one of the reasons why we started LearnWorlds, because we were very dissatisfied by the state of platforms out there. In most cases, we're like when we started, there were cases where people were just throwing a PDF and that was considered to be in learning. So here's a 60-page PDF. Read it. Yes, you have been through e-learning. But that's not how we learn. These are not the kind of experiences that we crave. People, especially these days, are used to having amazing, slick digital experiences with their iPads and their tablets and their gaming devices and all this stuff. So you have to be able to offer engaging, interactive learning in order to be able to capture their attention, gain their attention, and to have them spend time on the platform, learn and benefit from their reading. And this is the kind of experiences that we are able to offer with LearnWorlds. And so who are your normal clients? So anyone listening now, if they don't understand, maybe if you give us an example or two, maybe that might help people realize who you actually help. Yes. The the great thing is that learning can be found anywhere. And I guess every day we see a different use case, a different customer segment. There are many professional trainers that offer professional like skills that have to do with how one can be better at his or her job, like can be digital marketing, it can be software development, it can be designing web pages or becoming a data scientist or a data analyst. These are highly sought after skills. But also anybody who has an audience and has some content that they want to monetize, they can launch their own online school. So we have many customers who are selling courses around subjects that are of interest to the general population, like photography, cooking, DIY, healthcare, and nutrition, and lifestyle, and yoga, and everything that somebody would like to know, anything that they would like to know more uh, about. So I guess, yeah, like you said, anyone who's trying to start an educational platform on, I guess, stuff they specifically know, they could just go to your website and at learnworlds.com, they'd want to use your platform versus like setting it up on a basic WordPress because it's much easier, you're saying? It's much easier. I mean, there are some plugins or stuff like that where using which you can do something on WordPress, but very, very soon people discover that it's unmanageable, it's unscalable. You know, plugins start to break down. So you need something that looks better and actually just works out of the box so that people can focus not on the technical stuff and how to just make the site run, but they can focus on what is important to them, which is creating their best possible content and selling it to as many people as possible. So LearnWorlds is an all-in-one platform. We take care of all the hosting. So you don't have to pay for hosting, to pay for a web designer because we offer templates. We have more than 400 templates that people can just mix and match and they can create the best possible version of their online school with amazing designs, everything mobile-friendly and e-commerce ready, and uh, everything just simply works out of the box. So we offer the hosting, we offer the e-commerce platform, everything is integrated, and we offer the actual training delivery, the delivery of the content, whether it's videos, ebooks, assessments, quizzes, anything that somebody would like to include within a course. And as you can imagine, depending on the subject, there might be different content used. So the majority of the content that people use is videos, which is usually educational videos from three to 10, 15, 20 minutes. Anything longer than that is usually counterproductive and people just get bored. So it's better you know, to have lots of smaller videos that you line up together and then add some textual information as well. We provide some amazing tools with which one can get a traditional boring 
a normal video and convert it into an interactive experience by adding pop-ups and pointers and frames, even quizzes that run throughout the video and help students get engaged, interact with the content and pay attention to the content. So using all this stuff, you can get an amazing course. LearnWolves is effectively a business in a box. So all you need to run an e-learning business right now is just a subscription to LearnWolves. You just plug in your payment gateway so that you can accept payments. You upload your courses and you are ready to start selling in a, in a couple of days. Yeah, that seems kind of smart with the pop-ups and interaction. Once you even said after five minutes, I feel like after five minute video, no one's going to pay attention because yeah, when you're saying 10 to 20, I guess it depends on the depth of conversation, but I don't even care if you're like, a grad student and whatnot, people's attention span now, no matter what age you are, is definitely less. So I think the pop-ups that you said were a good idea as far as just keeping people interactive or quizzes or whatever. Because if you have to click something, then you have to interact. Like everything needs to be more interactive if I want to pay attention for that long. Everything needs to be much more interesting and much more engaging to students. So this is where we differ from a traditional learning management system. There, if you are working, if you're an employee in a company, there's a mandatory training. You know that you'll have to sit several hours, go through the course, check the boxes and be done with it. But here we are trying to help people to sell more courses. So these courses need to be consumer grade. They need to be amazing. They need to be engaging, entertaining even. So we have to take the best of pieces of knowledge that a knowledgeable person has and put it into a digital format that is very engaging. And one example I can think of, like we had an amazing trainer doing some courses on conflict resolution within a company setting, like how you deal with, a, I don't know, with a customer who is misbehaving or with a colleague that you need to, like you're having an argument. And they had shot all these nice little interaction videos where like two minute interactions between, let's say, a salesperson and a customer with LearnWolves, without being an expert, without having to pay for a video editor or somebody like that, you can get these simple plain videos that perhaps you shot yourself with a mobile phone and with their built-in editors, you can upgrade them into an interactive experience where, for example, the scenario can play out. So you have two people shouting at each other and then you have a pop-up question coming up and say, okay, what is the right response here from your end? What you should be doing in this case? And based on your answers, based on the student's answers, you get feedback, or you can even move forward or backward in the video, which means that the, what was a boring TV-like experience where you just go in and watch a video and you're probably bored after five or 10 minutes can become very, very engaging. People are being asked to participate, so that uh, keeps their attention span you know, refreshed and still open. They're engaging with their content. They're very happy after they complete the course. And that's also what drives them to become repeat customers, come back for more, for the next video and the next course and the next course. So these are some small things that we add in the platform. Also gamification, you know, you participate, you get a nice badge about being the best guy in the school or having watched lots of videos or having succeeded in the tests. All these little things help to make the experience much more interesting, much more engaging. If you're like me, you know it's important to stay up to date on investment opportunities because the more you know, the better you can invest. If you want to understand what the hell is happening in this economy and your bank account, then understanding finance and investing is key. 
It doesn't have to be ultra complex and intimidating if you have the right resources to guide you. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about Real Vision and their ridiculous $1 trial deal. Real Vision is a video on-demand platform you can watch basically anywhere, mobile, desktop, smart TVs, and more. As a member, you'll get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos from the archives, including special limited series, focused educational journeys for beginners, and experienced investors alike. It's the stuff that actually affects your wallet, investments, and your future. Real Vision has no agenda, no editorial bias, and they don't tolerate self-promotion, hype, or BS. They're not on anyone's side, except yours. Right now, you can try Real Vision for all of $1. It's a special introductory rate specifically for you and this audience. You've got nothing to lose, but potentially a lot to gain. Get started now at realvision.com forward slash millionaire. Try it for a week. And if you like their content, you'll get a 17% discount on a year of their essential membership. Again, go visit realvision.com forward slash millionaire. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. That makes sense. I guess, yeah, we'll find a little bit more details about your company, but I guess one other thing is... I guess if anyone's interested, it looks like it can start for free for 30 days, right? So they can check it out, If I guess, even if you're interested at all. Sure. They can just start a free trial, 30-day free trial. The platform is fully functional. And from our end, we'll be happy to show them around, show them some nice case studies and help them become successful in this space. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah, that's learnworlds.com in case anyone wants to check it out now while we get the rest of the interview and try to figure out how you built this company. So how big is your company today? Right now, we are 99 people, I think, today. So the company is growing. We're based mostly in Greece and Cyprus, but we also have started hiring people in other countries. As we grow, we are primarily remote companies, so more than 90% of the staff works from wherever they are. That allows us to, you know, to easily add people into the team and find the best possible talent wherever it's available. And we are hiring also, we're probably going to be around twice that number at the end of 2022. We recently did a major funding round with Insight Partners, one of the top, I guess, uh, US uh, VCs and private equity firms. They have invested in the likes of Shopify, Udemy, even Twitter in the past. 
They have huge experience in the space. They're also a very hands-on VC with lots of resources to devote to a company to help them grow and help them unlock growing opportunities. So we are at a great place at a great time with a great product, looking forward to the next phase of our growth. And how much was the funding? The total funding was $32 million. Oh, congrats. Thanks. What made you want to take the funding? Well, it was the right time. Also, it was the right partner. So I have to admit that e-learning as a business wasn't very sexy, let's say, in the previous years. It always, you know, looked as a kind of boring, like old school and slow kind of market. So the kind of of these investment rounds like that were happening in digital marketing or sales, let's say, or I don't know, crypto or whatever, these things were not possible in the e-learning space. But these things have accelerated rapidly. And obviously, COVID has been a huge catalyst in the understanding of how e-learning can be the default mode of learning going forward. So we're not here to replace schools. We're not here to replace universities. But we understand that an increasingly larger amount of training happens outside traditional schooling, outside traditional classrooms. And we believe that our platform will be closer to what the mainstream learning paradigm will be for the future. So obviously, COVID has been a huge catalyst for the entire market. Just to give you an example, the predictions for the size of the e-learning industry before COVID for 2025 were for a maximum market value of $325 billion. Right now, predictions talk for a trillion dollar market. So anybody, everybody understands that e-learning is here to stay. It's becoming the default mode of learning and millions and millions of businesses worldwide are transitioning rapidly. They're undergoing this transformation into an e-learning first mentality. So in this space, the opportunity was huge. Obviously, investors started uh, you know, piling in, in and we had to, you know, to beat them back with a stick. And during the past, the previous months before the funding, we're talking with some of the top VCs globally and we're trying to see who are the right partners, who have the right mindset, who can employ resources for helping the business going forward. So I think we found a great partner at a very opportune moment to invest in our future growth. And so when you were looking at funding, were you the only sole owner or did you already have partnership money beforehand? What was the deal with that? We are three co-founders and we are three in the business and we go back many, many years. In fact, we met each other more than 25 years ago in the university. We studied computer science together and then we did postgraduate studies in educational technology. So I have a PhD in EdTech. This is how we started. We started as researchers, you know, trying to see what is the state of the art of e-learning, building platforms, but within a university setting. Back then, I mean, we built our first platform back in 2000. Okay. Well, real quick, before I guess we talk about the partnership money, but real quick, because I want to talk about that whole story, but was it just the three of y'all who put money in before you got this money? We were a bootstrap company. So we were just the three of us who put money, but we had done a small funding round of $1.2 million in 2019. But for the first two years of being a side project and five years of being a company, we were purely bootstrapped company, only, you know, Family, friends, and fools, ourselves including, had put the money. And then uh, we did a small funding round in 2019. Okay, perfect. Okay, so now, yeah, let's go back and rewind it to, I guess, when you went to college and where you were raised and stuff. And that way we can dive into the details. Yeah, yeah. I guess it goes back to the roots. We met more than 25 years ago. We studied together. We have no idea about doing business. Yeah, but real quick, where did you study? We studied in, uh, in Greece, northern Greece. 
a university in Thessaloniki, like Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. There we studied computer science, all, all three of us. Okay. And so you met in undergrad? Yes. Yes. We met in undergrad. Actually, I was living together with, we were sharing a house with one of my co-founders. Lots of fun, you know, and parties and stuff like that, but also lots of work, understanding, going into doing some small projects here and there, becoming developers, gaining uh, trust and confidence in our capacity to build things. It was, uh, I guess, 1995 to 2000. So there were lots and lots of things happening. It was before the dot-com boom, actually. So there were lots of amazing transformations happening online. And it was a great place to really test your potential and see what you can do. So then we started doing postgraduate studies in educational technology. Again, purely in an academic setting, there was nobody around. When we built our first platform in 2000, there was nobody around to say, okay, that can be a business. This is not knowledge that was available in a Greek university at that point. People didn't build businesses. They just became academic. So effectively, we were in a track to become academics ourselves. So we attended conferences. We published scientific papers. This is what we did. We also built products on the side, but these were usually just experimental products to test with a few dozens or hundreds of students. That's as far as we were going back then. We had no idea about how we could transform that into a business. And so, I mean, the whole time you're just like, I'm going to be a professor and do professors make a lot of money at all when you're thinking about doing a PhD? Nah, they don't make any money at all, especially in Greece. That's usually like it's a highly respected, but not very well-paying profession. Only if you end up, I don't know, becoming very well connected and doing some actual products with projects with industry, then at some point you might have the opportunity for, let's say, an extra remuneration. But usually it's just a public servant salary. Highly respected though. So this is what we had in mind. We weren't expecting anything more. So for several years, we were just working in the university, participating in research projects, building things, but always with a track to become academics at the end of the day. How big was the university? That's actually one of the biggest universities in Balkans and Southeastern Europe. I think, I don't know, it has about 30,000 students, even more. Lots of different schools, you know, from medicine school, law school, like science school and all this stuff. We were a small department, computer science department, but it was overall a great student experience. Yeah. And so when you met your two other co-founders, you said that you met them in undergraduate, y'all became best friends then? Yes, friends. Yes, best friends and friends and working together and also studying together. So these things pretty soon became intertwined. So doing a PhD is a very intensive work. It requires lots of hours to put in. Actually, we didn't have any kind of extra revenue back then. So we had to actually fund our studies. So we also had to do day jobs or participate in projects so that we can fund our studies. So these were very intensive years, I would say, of lots and lots of work, both academic work and actual development work on the side so that we can progress with our studies. And so what year did you graduate after grad school? I graduated in 1999. I guess my friends somewhere around then, it was a bit older, had graduated. My co-founder, George, had graduated in 1998, probably. And my other co-founder, Fanny's graduated probably in year 2000 or late 1999. And then we worked for a few months and then we started graduate school the next year. Okay. And how long is graduate school? When did you graduate graduate school? 
I think I got my PhD degree in 2008. So it was several years of work because it was partly part-time. So for a couple of years of that, it was part-time. I wanted to make sure, I think that's what you had said originally, but I was trying to figure out the years and you were kind of working for the university while you're doing it and whatnot. You know, everyone's a little different on how long it takes between like graduate school, PhD or whatever, but up till 2008. So you're basically about 30, 31 when you finally get done with all of schooling. Yes, yes. So at that point, I was already working on the side. So for a couple of years, I was a school teacher teaching computer science at a high school. For a couple of years, also worked in research projects as a researcher in EdTech, along with doing my actual studies. Also worked for a couple of years for the university itself. So these were, you know, low paying positions for like a day. And then at night, usually we used to study, try to publish papers and stuff like that. And so after you graduated, were you with your buddies and you're like, hey, let's start our own company or what made you want to graduate? Not right away. I think after that, we just drifted away, started doing different things, working in different ways. Also in Greece, there's a compulsory military service. So I had to go to the military for a year. So we started doing other jobs. In fact, after that, like in 2009, I started working for the European Parliament in Brussels. Along with my professor, became a member of the European Parliament, which for US equivalent is a senator. So I became actually his chief of staff working on research policy issues around the European Union. So that was a totally different career. I worked for five years in Brussels doing this stuff. But every couple of years, you know, we would meet with the guys and we were thinking about like, what is it next? Like, can we do something together? Like all this stuff that we have worked for many years, all this research we have done, is there a way that we can get back together and doing a side project and test if there is something for us to do? I guess we had this always on our mind. And at some point in early 2012, we met, we got together, we found ourselves. So we traveled, we met in Crete, which is a beautiful island in Greece. And we started brainstorming and deciding whether indeed there is an opportunity in the e-learning space and whether we should just team up, start doing a project, doing a great platform and create a startup. That's what we were thinking about. Okay. Well, when you took the job to work in Brussels, right? Are you saying that's totally different from what you're doing? So why'd you do that? It was an amazing opportunity, you know, to really know the world, do something very impactful. So at that point, I had to stop being a developer any longer. But these were things that were very interesting to me, like research policy and policy also itself, how you can optimize things and how you can set up structures so that uh, universities and companies and researchers can perform, they can do research, and they can create the best possible outcome for their societies, for our countries, and for, let's say, the European uh, Union. So it was a challenging opportunity outside my comfort zone, outside the typical stuff that I would do as a researcher. But I approached it as a scientific problem. So I understood that I had to read a lot, understand what it is, formulate hypothesis, study, and start applying this knowledge. It was also a very, an amazing place to work. It's like working, let's say, in Washington, the equivalent with lots of people from different countries, lots of different cultures, a multicultural, amazing, intensive environment. So it was a great learning opportunity for me. And this is also where you start seeing other successful, interesting people who have managed to perform at a great level So you pick up things here and there about how things can be. So not only see what you know in front of you, what you 
learned at the, let's say, peripheral small Greek university. But you also see the next things, like you meet with entrepreneurs, you meet with interesting people, influential people. So you start thinking about what is possible further down the line. And what was exactly like your role and title when you're doing that? I was a, let's say, a parliamentary assistant. I was a science and policy advisor for this member of the parliament, which is the equivalent of being a, I don't know, a member of the staff, a chief of staff or a U.S. senator. Okay. But so the policy and stuff that you're talking about, was it just for like education and universities that you were trying to optimize versus like other ones? It was research. It was mostly about the European Union's research and innovation policy. So I was still working with things that were relevant to me because I had experience as a researcher. So I knew on the ground how a researcher works, where funding can be found or like what researchers need. But also it was very close to innovation. Like how should we create startups? Is it possible to mandate startups and to create a more favorable environment for startups to be created? What are the startups that we need, let's say? What is the kind of entrepreneurship that we need for the next 10 or 20 years in order to solve the societal problems that we are facing, whether it's like energy issue or whether it's a pandemic like COVID or whether it's AI and uh, what challenges society might be facing from AI. So that was a very evidence-based, research-based, and rational environment. And we were also coming from a small country which doesn't have a strong scientific background in terms of actual numbers. Let's say Greece is not an industrial power or a big financial power, but still it's a place where science is very much valued. And we were trying to make our own contribution into the efforts of European Union to become, let's say, the next place for research to be done in the world. That makes sense now that you kind of explain it a little bit more in detail, you, especially you coming out of university and you knew these type of professors and whatnot that you could kind of figure out and help your country as far as, I guess, getting funding or optimizing, like you said, for those universities. But before we fast forward to you and your founders starting up Learn Worlds, I did write down something that I was thinking right when you graduated, 2007, 2008, right? You're saying that's when you graduated? Mm-hmm. How about the Greek government debt crisis? Wasn't that during that point in time that was around those years? It was a bit earlier. So in fact, it started at around 2010. So I was already working in Brussels back then and and my friends were in Greece. So that's the point where things started going south for the state. I mean, individual jobs, if you were a developer. So my friends still had some great jobs working in this field, but the total outlook of the economy was very, very bad. So the situation was very bad. Unemployment was growing. Youth unemployment was at about 50%. So imagine the most highly educated generation of Greeks with master's degrees and PhDs, and they were coming out an economy that was collapsing and there was nobody to hire them, nobody to offer them their first job. So the environment was very, very bleak. And I think that was also part of the things that gave us the drive to really attempt to do something which is entrepreneurial, like to be able to create a product, create an innovative product and service, create a business, be able to hire people. But also we understood very well that whatever we build, it should have a global outlook. It shouldn't be something for the Greek market or even for the European market, which was like in a, even the US wasn't looking great even back then. But at least we knew that we could have a global market to work with a huge pool of customers. And this could be the start of something big. I definitely agree. I think everyone knows, like it was a recession of the world, it seemed like during those years or two. But I do particularly remember, I think, I don't know if it happened in Greece first, 
But when they were talking about it, it was just kind of insane because I never even really heard about another European country having really a big financial crisis, but it seemed like it was insane in Greece. I remember when it first happened, they're acting like all of Greece was about to collapse. And I'm like, how the hell does that even happen? It you know? was, it was, it was like, it's a great, I mean, lots and lots of books have been written about this and then movies have been shown. So there's a huge discussion, but like nothing changed actually on the ground. So the houses and beautiful beaches and smart people didn't just disappear out of the thin air. <laughs> Right. That's what the news made it sound like, by the way, because you're a course. <laughs> yes, yes. So people, you know, weren't starving. So these things didn't happen, but there was a huge, I guess, collapse of trust in the Greek economy and the Greek politics. The entire Greek policy and governance and everybody, funds stopped coming in. There was a huge distrust in everything that was being done. And I have to say that back then in 2012, 2013, we had already started creating the business. It wasn't a business at that point. It was just a side project. So we were talking, you know, with a few people here and there, 2014, 2015. It was amazing because we were talking with Greek potential customers, like some big businesses, and they were laughing at us because nobody was investing in training and learning. I mean, these businesses, they could shut down in a few months. So obviously, they were investing zero amounts of money in training their own employees, let's say, or in knowledge. So that already seemed quite bleak, you know, for what their eventual outcome would be. Then we were talking with European customers, potential customers, and they were very, because of all this bad publicity around Greece, they were very worried about whether we could serve them. I had people come to me and say, okay, but will your servers function still next week? Like, will the country have electricity? And uh, like, will you be able to make payments or stuff like that? And we said, like, we are hosting everything like on Google or Amazon. There was tremendously bad publicity within Europe. On the very same day, we might be talking with a potential customer from the US and they were just loved the platform. They loved Greece. They said, great place. We would love to come there and, uh, and meet you, whatever. And they just signed up. It was crazy, the difference in trust that was existing back then between Europe and US. People from the US were always willing to take risk while Europeans were risk averse. If the platform worked, I mean, it was good enough for them, for a potential customer from the US. And that's actually the best thing that happened to us because from very early on, we adapted to the US market. We adapted to the understanding, the mentality, the pricing even, and to what this market needed. And US was by far by then the most mature market, I guess, when it comes to online courses and digital products. So this is what uh, formulated the platform going forward. Energetic Austin here. And our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I want a better gut health and an optimized immune system. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So all the things. See, I consume my healthy scoop of Athletic Greens every single morning, so I get my day started off right. Tons of people take multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. Your Athletic Greens subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D which is important to add during those winter months when you don't get a lot of sunlight. And guess what? Athletic Greens also supports better sleep quality and recovery. 
Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire. That is athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Energetic Austin here. And guess what? It's a new year, but it's feeling harder than ever to find and hire the qualified people you need, especially for small business. That's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. They make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. There's nothing better than finding a new employee to take those mundane tasks off your to-do list. And the best way to find that person is by using LinkedIn Jobs. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And so, yeah, you were obviously talking about, you fast forwarded from the crisis, right? To, I guess, when you had already started your company, right? Then when you're talking about getting clients. So the European ones were a little bit weary. And it really, you know, part of it, again, could have been their media, right? I think they're even more restrictive in the U.S. and, you know, lying even more, right? So if they're lying even more and they're right by you, that might be why they're worried. Or it might be like, you know, there's different cultures that have more risk than it's both. willing to take on more risk than others, right? Yeah, It's both. It's not lying. I wouldn't say lying, but I guess it was his sensationalist reporting at least so you know it everything lying it was closer (laughs) i guess it was closer to them so let's put it that way if greek collapsed it would affect the balance sheet of let's say netherlands or germany or all these countries so it would affect their pockets and obviously everybody in europe was afraid that they're going to be next whether it's portugal italy spain you know all the countries that didn't have the surplus So they thought that they would be the next ones to be affected. And in many cases, they were the next ones to be affected. So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, predicting the worst things about Greece and then making sure that the worst possible outcome happens. And obviously, yes, then the next month, things will go even worse. So there was a huge mismanagement, let's say, at least of trust from Greece's end, but definitely also from uh, European partners. And at that point, us, uh, when we started, you know, having the platform and having a website and trying to sell, it was so much easier to sell to a U.S. customer than to a European customer. And it's also the mentality, as you mentioned, like a usual sales cycle with a European customer could be, I don't know, 30 days or 50 days because they had to check everything and uh, triple check and put everything on paper 10 times and have it checked by legal and all this stuff. While With a similar level or size of customer from the US, a sales cycle could look, I don't know, like five days. 
It looks great. We tested it. We love it. Let's start working together. That was usually, you know, all that it took. So the maturity of the market and the speed of the market was so far greater than what we were experiencing in Europe back then. That's not the way now. Europe has made huge strides, both in startups and entrepreneurship. There are some amazing businesses being built and have been built in the past few years. So people are now more willing you know, to use SaaS software instead of traditional CD-ROM-based software. This crisis, actually, and I think it's the result of the crisis, this crisis has very much accelerated how risk tolerant we are, how we are willing to test new things, to find more efficient and effective ways of doing business instead of relying on the old traditional way of thinking and operating. I know it makes sense. Well, why don't we divvy down to like exactly when you started the company? Because now you've already told us a little bit about, I guess, some hurdles that you had when getting customers, but it seems like maybe it helped you in the long run, right? It stinks in the beginning if you want European customers, but the US ones are making it much easier for you to get clients, if you will. But why don't we talk about you starting like day one with your three co-founders, what y'all had to do, how much money you had saved up, et cetera. Back then, we didn't have a formal budget. So we started in 2014. We incorporated in 2014. We didn't have an official budget. We were just the company. What's a bad, a budget, budget you're saying? Yes, yes. So back then we like we had zero customers. So effectively we had some money sitting in the bank and we were just paying each other's expenses. So that's the way we did it for the first couple of years. It's uh, some money that we had saved through our previous work. When my contract ended with the European Union, I started working full-time for the business, and this is how we took it going forward. In some cases, we were also doing side projects in order to be able to get some revenue, which then we invested in the product or in advertising or trying to just get the needle to move. Were you married at the time? No, I wasn't married. I was with my partner. I was living with her, with my partner. And also, I followed her to Cyprus. That's what we had to do back then, and it ended up to being a great choice. We ended up living here in Cyprus so many years after that. And it happened to be a great place to also create the business here eventually. Okay. So you moved from Brussels, Belgium to Cyprus? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. How about your co-founders? Because you met them in Greece at university, right? They stayed in their cities. Like uh, they returned after university, they returned to two smaller cities in Greece and they still are there. They're located there to this day. So this is how also we started as a remote company. So we started as a remote company out of necessity. We were in two different countries, three different cities. So we had to work you know, to use all these tools back then, it was Skype and then it was Zoom and then it was Slack and all this stuff. So all these things were by requirement and I guess by design, the everyday way of doing business. So this is how the company eventually grew. We started hiring a few people wherever we could find them. Well, real quick, just pause if you don't mind every once in a while so I can ask some questions. So when you even making your first hire, because you said it'd been a couple of years before you made money, right, doing this, when was your first real hire other than you three co-founders? We added a person in the team, I guess, even in the first month, but he wasn't being paid a salary and he had been promised some shares. So that's the only thing that we could afford. After a few months, I think we started giving him a small salary. It wasn't a proper business back then. We had the second person joining the team. Again, we were paying them, you know, some small money on the side and we were able to hire them properly, I guess, after one year. 
So effectively, we had promised them and they got shares of the company. So when we finally were able to you know, create a proper company, we were able to give them shares. And so it took a couple of years to build out this platform with you and your co-founders? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you made no revenue, like you're saying, for the first three years, you said? For the first, yeah, two, two and a half years, we had zero revenue. And in fact, for the first two years, we were developing the platform in stealth mode. You know, we did probably everything backwards. So we were engineers. So that's what we knew and scientists. So that's what we knew. That's how we knew how to operate. So we wanted to just build the best possible platform. And we were convinced that if we just show it to the world, everybody will just flock and buy because obviously it's the best platform. So what's there to discuss? You don't need any marketing if you have the best platform. But obviously, this is not how things work. So when we came out with the platform, we pretty soon realized that, okay, now the actual work probably starts because we have to create a market presence and have a go-to-market strategy. And we started reading and we started going into all these little startup competitions and started to pitch and learn how to create a pitch, you know, and go out in front of an audience and start to talk to them in order to convince them to use your platform. So we had lots and lots of learning to do, but we weren't shy of that. I mean, even though we had PhDs and whatever, we understood that we were very much newbies in this space. So we had to do what is necessary, whether it's like learning, sitting on a desk or attending an online course or whatever. We had to learn what marketing is and what AdWords campaign is and what SEO is and whatever, and be able to do that as best as we can so that we can start selling the platform. But right when you like published a platform and made it ready to go you know, online, do you remember that date? We had our first customer before actually publishing. So we had found a guy on the side. I think we started working with them like at the beginning of 2014. And they actually launched their school. It was a photography school. It was a school for artistic photography in Greek. We launched it in the summer of 2014. Okay, but that was only one person. The rest of it... Was a couple of years till you started getting your other potential clients or? It was a few months. Then we had our first customers from the US came around the autumn of 2014. Then the first six months, we had something like 10 customers. But you said you made no revenue from 2014 to 2016, but now you're telling me you had clients in 2014. We had customers, but back then the revenue we were making was negligible. We're talking about I don't know, not even $100. So that's kind of revenue we're talking about. So at that moment, we were giving the platform effectively for free and we were only charging fees, sales fees, whenever somebody made the purchase. So even though we had agreed with somebody, we had zero revenue until they were able to get revenue on their own. So as you can imagine, it took a few months. So we signed up somebody as a customer, but we had zero revenue for several months until they were able to create their online school, shoot their content, upload their courses, and start selling. So the revenue we had for the entire 2014, it was, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, something like that. So as you can imagine, this could barely pay for the, I don't know, the domain name and the hosting of the website, like something like that, nothing more. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. When you're getting these people, let's just say 10, 20 customers, even though you're barely making any money from it, are you learning things? Is that why you're doing that at the same time versus three years of research and finally developing? Yes, yes. At that point, we are discovering what the market actually wants. And in some cases, I would say that we discover that our product is probably too complicated for some of them. And in some cases, we should scale it down because the things that we had imagined as being super critical and super important 
are not what the market actually expects or needs at that particular moment. So we started learning a lot from our customers, getting feedback, designing with them some of the features, listening very, very carefully to what they have to say. Because, I mean, even though we were the researchers, we understood that in the market sense of somebody who has an online course and has sold it in the past or knows how to sell it, we have to listen to them in order to understand and improve the platform. These were very transformative months for us. We were valuing every little piece of feedback that we're getting from every one of these very few customers. And to this day, this is our mentality. Like every little piece of feedback, if it comes from a customer, we give to it much more attention than we give to our own insights. That makes sense. And then so I guess that helped early on and it helped you kind of figure out what to build versus, again, it almost sounded like you just went in a silo and the three of y'all made a software product for three years and made no money. And then it came out and you weren't ready and it was too complicated. But you're saying just having clients come on slowly kind of helped you figure out you're making it too complicated. Mm -hmm. So it was about redesigning the software, but also being able to sell it, like present it, like present the value proposition and present why is this for? Like, what problem does it solve? So at that point, we started going into a very fast spiral of learning, adapting to the situation. What was your big kickoff year that you started finally making enough money? It sounded like 2017? It was probably 2017, although even to that point, we weren't getting any salary from the business, even in 2017. So every little revenue we were getting, we were investing back into the company, whether it would be to hire a developer or to hire a sales rep or even do a small marketing uh, campaign. So I guess we probably got our first salary at some point, end of 2017. A small salary as co-founders, but even till that point, we were mostly either still putting money into the business or getting zero salary. And then it's just grown dramatically over the last three or four years since then? I guess even in 2017, back then we were growing by 100% or more per year. So things were becoming very interesting. Still, it was an early market. We were mostly dealing with early adopters. So not everybody thought that online courses are the next big thing. So we had to do lots of explaining. We had to explain what we are and what we do and what an online course platform is. Something that, as you understand now, is no longer necessary. Like now everybody understands what's an online course platform Uh, can do for them and how it could be useful. But I'm saying, how much have you grown over the last three or four years? Because it seems like it has to be very significant. Yes, it has been significant. We grew by about 100% last year, close to something like that for 2021 as well. As I mentioned right now, we're about 99 people. We have more than 5,300 customers. Yeah, but you said like 100% in each of these years, basically. But you basically went from like, it sounds like five people to 99 in like four years or five years? Less, less than that. The huge year of our growth in terms of employees was uh, 2020 and 2021. So at the beginning of 2020, we're about 35 people and we became about... 60 people at the end of 2020. And then we added another 40 people in 2021. Okay. So really, yeah. Up till COVID, how many employees did you have before? 35 employees and about close to 1000 customers, but I cannot share like exact revenue uh, figures uh, here. That's fine. We had about 1000 customers at the end of 2019. I guess they were about two and a half thousand at the end of 2020 and close to five thousand five hundred, I guess, we will be at the end of 2021. 
Well, see, that helps way more for me to figure out when, because I keep pushing. I'm like, when did you finally get started getting more and more customers? But it's really been all since COVID happened. It seemed like dramatically really pushed up. And you kind of even said that in the beginning. And I think we could all imagine that, but we're even seeing it in your numbers now that you're explaining it a little bit more. Yeah, I guess that's close to 100% or a bit more growth. So we grew more than 100% within 2019 as well. We started with less than 500 customers in the beginning of the year and then ended up with a thousand at the end of the year. So obviously it was at a much smaller scale, but for our business at that point, 100% already seemed you know, like a skyrocketing growth. So from our perspective, it was still a huge thing to see and to experience. Okay. Well, with your perspective, what's been the hardest thing about growing your business here? I think one of the toughest things has been the conditions under which we're growing because our team also had to grow and we are a remote team. So it's very, very difficult to keep a remote team connected and focused and sharing the same vision. While in the past, it was easy, even with a remote team, you know, to travel, meet them, sit into a room for a couple of days if it needs be for a project or something. Now with the COVID, everybody like being remote, not being able to travel, stressed also or being under lockdown. This has been one of the difficult things, trying to keep the team focused and engaged, sharing the same vision, sharing the same passion for the platform. If conditions were normal, it would have been more easy to experience this kind of growth, get everybody on board, be on the same page and work under more normal conditions, I would say. How about personally? What's been the hardest thing? I've tried talking a little bit more about your personal life, but I really haven't got any of it. So, Well, lots of work. That's, that's I guess... What is the most difficult part, especially in the past few years, we were working with very few resources. So we still are very much hands-on. So we're probably the first people to enter the building or the, I don't know, the Slack channel and the last to go out. And that's obviously not sustainable in the long term. So we always wanted to do more stuff that we were able to do. We were always feeling anxious about the viability of the company, like making sure, you know, that you make payroll. Everybody's happy. Everybody has their resources. When you are a bootstrap company without, I don't know, a couple of millions sitting in the bank, being able to make payroll, that's very much one of the, you know, the top concerns every day so that you make sure that you provide for all the people who have invested their work and they're investing the labor of their mental work and physical work for you. So that was always a very difficult thing to do, having to make all these extra long hours to make sure that the company will stay afloat. Now things are much more demanding because you don't have to account for 20 people or 10 people or 30, but for 100 and more. But now we also have the resources. The market is going great. We have the resources to bring in extra help. So things are becoming much more rational. You know, you can take a day off. That's something that we couldn't do for the first few years of the company. So this is now something that puts us into a more longer term path where we are able to strategize again, try to see what are the important parts going forward, what are the critical things to do for the business, where the opportunities can be found. And the same thing goes also for personal life and family. So family understands that you have you know, all these extra obligations and that you cannot devote all the hours that they would like and you would like to them. They Obviously, they are understanding. But at some point, you know, being in the office, having to stay up, working late, missing family obligations, as you can imagine, this can have a toll. 
But I guess in the past couple of years, we were lucky enough as a remote company and being under lockdown to work from home with our families, with my daughter next to me, like she was doing her homeschooling next to me. I was working on the product or with the team. So I guess even under these crazy conditions of the past couple of years, we were able to find better balance and devote more hours to family. So that was something that really, really helped a lot. Before that, you said you probably weren't doing that enough, or do you still think you were adequate at doing that? It's always a balance. Like Obviously, you have to have a very understanding partner, and you know that you are doing something that is unsustainable. When you are working so many hours, you're neglecting, let's say, your workout or your health or things that you should be doing or doing these extra, I don't know, these manual tasks, these little chores at home that you cannot do. All these things take their toll. But we think that we didn't have an option back then, you know, with my co-founders. The company was really driving us. It was the product of the labor of so many years. So we wanted to make sure that it will survive these first few years and will stay afloat. And we managed to get the company now at a level that the viability of the company is no longer in question. The company has all the people and all the resources that it needs. And we keep adding resources, hiring. We're trying to hire the best possible people that we can find out there so that we can make it what it deserves to be. And we can showcase this great product to as many people as possible out there. And so your reward for the funding is that instead of working seven days a week, you only work six days a week now? Probably something like that. But there is, first of all, from seven days a week to six, six weeks, it's an amazing improvement. I can assure you of that. I believe you. <laughs> also, we see that there is a future and, you know, next year or in two years, we could be working five days a week and, you know. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what I'm trying to do now and what everybody's trying to do is set up the processes for the business and trying to hire people that are much better than us in everything we do. Like my dream for the business is for me to be the least useful person in the business in the next couple of years. So to find the great, talented, amazing developers and product managers and product marketers and marketing people and everyone so that they are much more professional and better at what they do so that they can achieve better results, not by working 80 or 90 or 100 hours per week, just by doing you know, their great work and a normal circumstances and getting paid and rewarded for that. And they can do their best possible thing. And I really want to become the least useful person in the business. That's my dream. What if I told you you could be more productive in business and in the bedroom? Well, you probably know that I was talking about our next sponsor, which is Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. When the guys and gals over at Magic Mind sent me their magical elixir a few weeks ago, I won't lie, I was a bit skeptical. But once I took down a shot of Magic Mind, let's just say that A, I got more work done in one hour than I had the entire previous week, and B, my wife said I look sexier and larger in all the right places which she was talking about my big brain, of course. See, Magic Mind is a nootropic shot of healthy, natural ingredients that helps you decrease stress, boost blood flow, and keep you focused. Magic Mind was made for smart men and women just like you. Don't just take my word for it. Hear how the guys on Not Another Bachelor podcast are using Magic Mind in their workplace. Get this. As you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I got some people that work for me. I've been getting ready to fire like three guys. And then I discovered magicmind.co. And what I did is I started taking that elixir and I poured in their coffee before we start the day. Whole new employee showing up. 
I don't need to fire anybody anymore. I got really productive employees kicking ass for me. Profits are up. Have they mentioned the taste of the coffee? They haven't noticed a bit. One of the benefits that isn't even on the bottle. I don't know if you're having a little uh, trouble with the sex life with your spouse. When they're not looking, you pour a little bit of this in their uh, nightly wine or something like that. Next thing you know, they'll be fucking giving you a This isn't any male enhancement or anything like that. What it does is unlocks the supercomputer that is the human brain. It will free up your creative and confident mind when you are in the bedroom. If you wanted to do a whirling dervish, well, now you can. You'll have the creativity and the Zen hum that will allow you to execute that flawless maneuver in the bedroom. So if you're ready to race past your competition and satisfy your partner, then try Magic Mind today. Go visit magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20 to get 20% off your first order. That's magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20. I feel like we still haven't really gotten that deep or personal as far as like what's really been the hardest thing with your business or even personally. I mean, I understand that you're saying that, okay, you don't see your family enough, but that's really it. I mean, is there any other personal story or business story that's really been a really big hardship? It's not one hardship. I guess it's a constant chain of small hardships. As you have may have judged from our background, we are scientists by heart and researchers. So we weren't natural born entrepreneurs, I would say. So we had to learn lots of this stuff, which is a great experience. Learning, you know, opens up your mind. But we always feel that we are still to this day much better at building an amazing product, which is great. I mean, it's absolutely necessary in order to have a great business. And we always feel that when it comes to marketing or selling or selling ourselves even, you know, or I don't know, creating this persona of experienced entrepreneur who has figured out everything and has everything solved and let's go and make a dent in the universe. We feel that we're not there and that's not who we are. So we still try to be problem solvers, help our customers improve, make even small steps and try to be a little, a tiny bit better every single day. So I can't say that there is like a single point of truth or a single point of failure that we faced. It was a constant effort always to solve small and small problems and try to become better. And this is where I guess the beauty of continuous effort and compounding growth, the beauty of a software as a service business can be found. So I still remember vividly the day I wrote our first customer support article. And in fact, I had to write 10 before publishing the customer support site. We didn't have anything like that. We were just responding to people emails. And I still remember to the day we wrote with my co-founders our first blog post. Obviously, it didn't change anything for the trajectory in the business. But once you have 10 and 20 and 50, all these things start to add up. They might not seem very important when you're doing them at first. But all these little things, they add up. And at the end of the day, you can end up having something as meaningful as a a huge company with a great team. Just to put this, let's say, in a word, the most challenging thing for us has been always trying to be better at marketing and selling the platform. The product, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but it's something that we always were much better at creating and designing the product. So we feel to this day that we are doing a disservice to the product because it's an amazing product and everybody that uses it, especially in comparison to the competition, really agrees on how powerful the platform is. And we think that we should be doing a much better job at showing how great the product it is. So I feel this as my personal mission 
to showcase how amazing this platform can be and how it can help professional trainers and entrepreneurs to become successful at what they're doing. I think that makes sense. I mean, all of us have certain skill sets, right? And it sounds like you said, again, that yours is this background in education, that you built a great platform and that you thought you were going to get all these customers, but because it was so great, right? But still, even if you have the best platform, it sounds like you still need to market. That's like maybe one thing that you've learned in building this business. Definitely, definitely that. The importance of doing marketing. So many other startups, successful startups have been created starting from marketing and without even having a product. And you know, and first testing the product, testing what the market needs, and then building the product. We did it the traditional way with a mentality of build it and they will come. It didn't work initially, but at the end, the product found its way. So we had the same product at the end. It's not that we created another product. We managed to bring in line the marketing with the product. We found a willing customer base out there. So this is where I guess this magical moment of product market fit happened. And from there, things grew much faster. And I guess COVID also was a catalytic event that also created a perfect storm for online courses. Well, congratulations on building your business here. Thank you. So do you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening, an entrepreneur or business person who want to learn from your story here? I'm not sure if it's going to be words of wisdom. Nevertheless, I will try. I would say that something that we see from every day is that the eventual success, I guess, of a company or a startup is not deemed by how much you know, but how fast you learn. We haven't solved everything but we are willing to learn every day, improve and become better every single day at what we do. So to this day, we're not building the company that will solve the problems of like this year or the next year. We're trying to create a mechanism, a company that will solve even problems for the years to come. Always learning and always learning and always adapting mentality is what we're trying to do. And also for me, that was an amazing revelation how this compounding growth and all the effort that we're putting into building something really compounds at the end of the day. So if we just can become a tiny bit better at what we do every single day, whether it's, I don't know, business, fitness, nutrition, being a better spouse, being a better parent, if we can be a tiny bit better every day, in a year, we will see an amazing transformation in the results of our effort. That's something that I see every day in my life, in my business with my coworkers. So that's, I guess, the only thing that I would like to share. No, I appreciate it. And thank you for coming on. I enjoy having foreign founders. You know, obviously I'm in the US, but there's people listening all around the world. So it's just always interesting to me that there's probably someone in Cyprus who's, oh, there's definitely people in Cyprus listening right now or around there. It's cool to know that people are building businesses, not only in the US, but obviously all around the world. And for you to share that story that hopefully don't make excuses just because of somewhere you live or you know, people can make excuses for anything, but it's really just powering through. And it sounds like, obviously, for you, one of the things that worked is working hard. You were working seven days a week, and now you're excited about only working six days a week. I think that's one thing that you can't forget. It's like, yeah, you actually have to put in the work to get to where you are today, right? Yes. So anything can happen. The world is becoming much, much smaller. COVID also showed us that. The resources for building an amazing business can be found now everywhere and anywhere, and they can be had very cheaply, whether it's like web servers or even remote workers, people, ideas and blueprints and processes, all these things are around us. So there's really no excuse. Just do it. You know, Just start working on your idea. And if your next idea is an online course, 
give us a call, shoot us an email, and we'll be happy to help you out. And that's at laurenworlds.com. And then one last thing is, yeah, if someone wanted to reach out and thank you specifically for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? You can send us an email at hello at learnwars.com. I'm also receiving these emails and checking them daily. And if you happen to be around in Cyprus, just visit our offices and let's have a cup of coffee. Well, thanks for coming on, Panos. Thank you, Austin, for having me. I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech-based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member, we've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back? 